Hey everyone, I'm Andrea Ferretti, and this is episode 61 of Yogaland. Today, I talked to author Jamal Yogis. He is the author of a new book called All Our Waves Are Water. I first met Jamal years ago when I was working at Yoga Journal, and he was an intern, and he has since then published three books, Saltwater Buddha, The Fear Project, and now his most recent book that we're going to talk about today. Jamal went to Columbia Journalism School. He's an award-winning writer. He's written for ESPN, The Washington Post, The Atlantic, San Francisco Magazine. I could go on and on. The thing I love about Jamal is that he's just a really deep thinker with a really interesting life that he writes about eloquently in his books. He's also a devoted surfer, so that is a through line in his books as well. I was talking to Jamal in the beginning of the interview about the spiritual serendipity that I've noticed in his life. His last name is pronounced Yogis, but he spells it like yogis which we all took note of when we were hiring him at Yoga Journal. He grew up with his parents going to the Parahamsa Yogananda Ashram, but that didn't exactly take. So he finished his high school years in France. And while he was living there, he discovered Buddhism through Thich Nhat Hanh on his own. Later on in his college years, he spent some time in the Himalayas and got to listen to talks from the Dalai Lama. And in his graduate program at Columbia, he took classes with Robert Thurman, who's a professor there and a, recognized as an authority on Asian history, Buddhist science, Tibetan Buddhism, and the Dalai Lama. So Jamal has all of this background, and he's kind of a mutt, which I appreciate because I, I feel that way myself. He's studied deeply with reputable teachers, and he's trying to live out these practices in his daily life. He's now a dad of three boys and lives in San Francisco. And he writes about... Buddhist and yoga philosophy in a way that's so accessible and so relevant and and honestly really poetic. It's it's beautiful and I really appreciate him. So enjoy the interview. So when I met you as an editor at Yoga Journal and you came on as an intern, and I don't know if I ever told you this, but when your application came in, and I think somebody had met you, I don't remember who interviewed you first, but we talked about your last name. Like we talked about it being kind of serendipitous that your last name was basically, you pronounce it Yogis, right? But it's Yogis. Yeah. yeah. But we, of course, read it as yogis. So we were kind of all like, what, what are we going to hire? Like Sally Jones? Are we going to hire the, you know, well-educated young journalists with the last name Yogis? <laughs> I know. It's so funny. And, you know, as I was reading your book, your latest book, I just couldn't help but feel like your life has a lot of spiritual serendipity to it. Like you've studied with so many great spiritual teachers. And one story that I don't think I've heard yet is how you met Thich Nhat Hanh, because he, meeting him seemed to be really pivotal for you in terms of like setting you off on your own spiritual path. Yeah, I kind of wrote that briefly into my first book, Saltwater Buddha, but there wasn't a whole lot to it in terms of like, like met him in a cafe or anything. <laughs> like, as you know, I ran away from home when I was 16 to Maui. And that didn't last long because I was like a mischievous teenager. I was on probation for getting a DUI. And I wasn't really a bad kid, but I'd just gotten caught in like a partying my junior year. And so anyway, I ran away. My dad came to get me after I was there for like three weeks. And they convinced me to come home, all of which I write about in, in Saltwater Buddha. And then they were like, we see that you're trying to like start anew. You're not digging like suburbia and the popularity contest and all of it. And so let's do this legally <laughs> and right. And so my mom was a French teacher. And so we enrolled in a French exchange program. And so there I was in France my senior year. And that has a whole funny story that I've never written where I ended up in this really wacky family in Paris that was like stealing from me and trying to get me to like steal cars with them and stuff. But long story short, I ended up switching families to this really nice family in the mountains. And I was got really into Buddhism there. I was sort of already getting into meditation and yoga on my own, but something about being thrown into a different culture, mm. which really makes, especially when you're 17, 
18, it really makes you question your identity. So Buddhism and the whole like questioning the self thing was sort of like, it was perfect timing. And to do Buddhism in France, it, it hadn't really caught on. Like the mindfulness movement hadn't, wasn't really there yet. And so my spring break, I went to Plum Village for 10 days and I just did, that was like my first immersion into a Buddhist monastery. And I got there, Thai, Thich Nhat Hanh, was there that week and he spoke and he just blew me away. And I was like, I'm not leaving here. I actually called my mom and was like, I'm not going to leave the monastery. I'm going to be a monk here. <laughs> I remember that. I remember that because I feel like maybe when I met you, I was dating a guy who became a monk. It was, it was basically like soured me on Buddhism for quite a long time. <laughs> so I remember your story of wanting oh to become, you, you wanted to become a monk several times, right? I did. Well, then my mom was like, geez, Jamal, just finish high school. Already. Yeah. She was like, give a few months, you know? So I did. And then I, I think I would have gone back to Plum Village. My grandmother passed away. I came home for her funeral and then I was like, well, I can't afford to take it back to France, so I'll just join a monastery in California. And I lived there for a year and thought I was going to be a monk and then didn't become a monk. But I wasn't dating anybody, so the Buddha didn't steal me from any. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah, no, it's pretty different when you're like, oh, okay, so when are we going to get married? And then he's like, I'm in Thailand and I'm never coming back. <laughs> oh, that's right. I remember that. Yeah, I can see how that. Yeah, just definitely threw me off the Buddhist <laughs> track for a while. I mean, we'll have like a whole other personal conversation about that because it's pretty funny when you get to that level. Like you touch on this a bit in the book that, you know, we're just so secular here. And what I found from that experience is just like when you do get to the monasteries and not not all of them, obviously, they're like all different, but but it can be as dogmatic as as Christianity, it can, it can be. There's not a lot, there's not like a great happy medium right now because yeah, it's like if you go the super orthodox traditional route, you're basically practicing in the same way that it would have been, you know, 2000 years ago and sometimes more intensely dogmatic in reaction to, you know, the secularization. But then there, there are places I think that are pretty flexible too, where the teachers are like, Hey, these are rules. I mean, Thich Nhat Hanh, I would say, is one of those places that's like following the rules of the old days, but like definitely interpreting them for Westerners, like where they're at. So like you can talk about these things as psychological tools. And I mean, Buddhism is good in that way. And that you, if you have a teacher worth their salt, they can be like, hey, well, these still are, yes, they're rules, but they're tools for liberation. So if this isn't serving you, then or it doesn't make sense for your life right now, then it's not like you're going to go to hell. It's just, you might end up like hell is a mental state. <laughs> right. And if you continue down this path of just like heedlessness, you might end up in a sort of hell of your own making. But so there, there is that going on, but then you can end up in a, in a monastery that where the teachings are totally different and they're very literal. And it does feel a lot like maybe what, you were trying to get away from if you're trying to get away from dogmatic religion. So you got to look around. And yeah. I think it's like anything you go to universities or something and it's all about the teacher. You know, it's like you might go to a really reputable school, but if you don't connect with this, a, a te you can have a bad teacher or a good teacher. And like you said, depends on what you're seeking at the time. And sometimes you you know, I think as you get further along in your spiritual path, like you know more of what you're seeking. But when you first start out, you usually don't know what you're seeking. One question I had is, so when you came back to California and you started studying at the monastery in Northern California, was that the one that was that your friend said, like, this is more strict in Chinese than the monasteries in China? <laughs> yeah, so I would it was a branch of that in Berkeley. So it was funny because the, the monastery you're referencing is the city of 10,000 Buddhas. And it is even known in China as a really orthodox, strict monastery. Like the monks, most of them have these vows where they like meditate all night. They never lie down. So it's just crazy strict. I mean, the uh, level of austerities that they're doing would make most Westerners be like, oh my gosh, this place is a little bit wild. And a lot of like 
you could say, quote unquote, magical thinking of like using mantras as like actual invoking powers of Buddhas and Bodhisattvas that are really seen as to some extent like real beings and to some extent maybe like manifestations of the sort of big mind. But that place is really you sort of have to learn the Chinese culture to be able to translate the teachings for yourself and what is Buddhism and what is Chinese culture. I was lucky to live in a branch monastery in Berkeley where the head monk was actually the first disciple of the the Chan master. And he's from Toledo, Ohio and grew up oh my Methodist. Gosh. That's where Jason's from. <laughs> and he's hilarious. And he was like a hippie. He like, left Toledo, Ohio to become a hippie. And then he like became a monk in this very Chinese tradition and he speaks fluent Chinese. So he could translate everything for us where he'd be like, okay, you know, you're tripping up on this cultural thing. Like, let me tell you what this is about. And, and so we could kind of practice again, we could be start where we were. So that was a really good place to be. And it was in Berkeley. So we could kind of pretend we were like really strict and still wake up at two 30 in the morning to meditate. But you know, if we got freaked out by like, why do we do this again? Or like, why does it seem like really homophobic? Or, you know, is this all Buddhism? Or, you know, and he would kind of explain to us like, what what's cultural context and what's Buddhism. So is that Stephen in the book? No. So his name is Hung Shur. He's the abbot of Berkeley Buddhist Monastery. And Stephen is a teacher who teaches at the Berkeley Buddhist Monastery every Wednesday. And Stephen Tainer is his name. And he, he's he been the closest thing to me as like an ongoing meditation teacher. I've been studying with him and doing retreats, you know, for gosh, almost two decades now. And the Berkeley Buddhist Monastery has classes and he teaches one. So he was also a great translator when I decided I wasn't going to be a monk. I was like, oh, well, who out there in the world is really doing this? Because as we've talked about at Yoga Journal, there's so much just like commercialization and people selling something just to like have a job. And you're like, who really knows about meditation and has done it? And um, Stephen struck me as that guy who like, he wasn't ever marketing himself. He was just like, but he had really done real practice. And so he was a great kind of bridge for me back to the world where I could see like, hey, you can be a lay person and and do this for real. Yeah, yeah, that's really important. If you are the kind of young soul who contemplates becoming a monk, I think. <laughs> and I, I'm not teasing. I mean, I'm not making fun of you. Like when I really considered, you know, ashram life as a path myself years ago. So I totally get it. It's just, you can just get so immersed that sort of everyday layperson life can seem really like, well, there's one part, part in the book where, you, where you're working really hard and you're like in the rat race and you're like, this just seems dumb. You know, like, why <laughs> yeah. am I doing this? Like what, to what end, you know? So, so yeah, so I get it. I get it. Yeah. Before you have a family and stuff, you're kind of like, I was never after the money. And so it was like, I was after experiences. And so, you know, when you, I think being in the monastery and feeling, I mean, as much as it, it can be, seem weird for, in our cultural context and sort of strict as like, you're not having sex and you're only eating one meal a day. And all, the monastery provides this sanctuary where you really do, everything is about meditation. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so you do get into these states of mind that you just don't run into it every day where you're, you find these really deep peace and like joy, just sort of upwelling and compassion where you look out at the world and you're like, wow, people are really suffering out there. And you feel, and, and all those things come up when your meditation is protected. And then you go out into the world and it just feels really jolting. And mm -hmm. you're just like, oh my gosh, like none of my energy is protected. I'm just out here and it's just a rush. It's just rush, rush, rush. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and you're like, what, what is the point of this? Because nobody out here seems that content with this situation. <laughs> but they're like, rush, rush, rush. It took me a while to realize that there are joys out here in the world and that you have to learn how to frame your life and find work-life balance. And to a large extent, I mean, I think 
all these books that I've done, surfing, (laughs) working at Yoga Journal, were a way to transition out of those like beautiful states that I found in the monastery and try to find them in the hustle bustle. And it's possible. It's possible. But it took me a while to reorient and be like, oh, the arts, like there are things that we do or, you know, making a legal system for society to function. Like there are things out here in the world that are worth doing um, and kind of part of that bodhisattva path that um, are good too. Yeah. (laughs) It took took me a while to, I mean, that's sort of the obvious. When you, again, when you're framed to this monastery life, I was like, oh my gosh, it's scary out here. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I want to talk a little bit more about when you were kind of immersed in the culture of, and you weren't in the, in a monastery, but when you were in the Himalayas and that was when you got to actually listen to the Dalai Lama do talks, right. Which I'm just like mentioning more of your spiritual serendipity, but you befriended, um, you know, one of the main kind of characters in your book, Sonam, who is a, a young monk. And the story that you tell, I'm hoping you can just tell it right now of hiking with him when he sees the snow for me is like, sort of the essence of the whole book and like the essence of spiritual practice. Can you, can you tell that story? It's such a sweet story. Yeah. So I show up in India again. I basically, I lived in the monastery. Then I go back to school and I, you know, fall in love, have my heart broken, fall in love again. And this is like my first real relationship where I'm with this girl Sati for like three years and we're planning to go to India together right before the trip where we're going to live in India for a year, she leaves me (laughs) for this other guy. And I'm just devastated. It's like that first heartbreak. Humans aren't supposed to feel pain like that kind of mindset. Yeah. I've been wandering around India. I go anyway. I've been wandering around India just devastated, just like totally depressed. And end up in the Himalayas finally sort of just needing something. And I meet this monk, Sanam, who happens to be heartbroken too, I find out after knowing him for several weeks because he's lost his family, who he left in Tibet, hoping to keep in touch with them. But then the occupation kind of ramps up and he's lost touch with them and he's worried. And he's like my age now, like 23, and he left his family at 11. So he's this is for whatever reason, this is like hitting him extra hard when I meet him. And he's like, gets choked up about it regularly. But he's also this monk who has clearly done some incredible practice because he just exudes joy in his eyes and everything about him is like, he's, it's a cliche to say it, but he's just exuding. And I kind of latch onto that as like, this guy is my (laughs) refuge because I can see that happiness is possible again in him. And anyway, one day we're hiking as we do every day in the Himalayas and he picks up some snow, the snow's melting, the spring snows are melting, and he goes, oh, this, this India snow, many sad, this many Tibet thinking home, my family, and he's like, it's hitting him more than I've seen, and he's like shedding tears, and I put my arm around him, and I say, so I'm so sorry that you can't see your family, and I'm really feeling it too, and he looks at me and laughs, and I was taken aback, and he goes, Jama, you funny. This very sad, no problem. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that became like a mantra for me, this very sad, no problem, because like you said, it, it kind of encapsulates what we're trying to do on the path, which is like embrace it all, embrace mm-hmm. the highs and the lows. And it's one thing to say that because it gets said a lot, but it's another when you see somebody embody that and so it was it was a poignant moment yeah even though it gets sort of gets said a lot I think it gets said less and less in the yoga community right now like I think the attachment to transcending states and being blissful and just and social media doesn't help like displaying everything is happy all the time I just think it's really pervasive right now and so and I think, you know, a lot of that is because like, we don't know what to do with our, our darker emotions. Like we just don't, we just don't have tools in our culture and we, so we're not taught. And 
I just love that story because like clearly he feels the emotion, like he feels sad and he's like really feeling it. But then when he kind of senses you're joining in the emotion, it's like, oh, okay, it's done. You know, <laughs> he's felt it. And also just like he, t- he gave you such a nice lesson of seeing the humor in the darkness, like seeing folly and like getting really attached and hung up. I should say that I felt like when he said that, I was like, oh, that's brilliant. And he's kind of representing this idea of embracing all the the waves, not just like the beautiful ones, but stormy ones too. And it took me like going on retreat myself, which I write about next in the book, and sort of carrying that mantra, like this Betty said, no problem, <laughs> to really know what he meant, because I, I hadn't realized that well, it's human nature to just be averse to bad emotions, yeah. to anything that doesn't feel pleasant. And, you know, there's that great little meme, like, you know, I'm going to live in the moment today, unless the moment's unpleasant, in which case I'll have a cookie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And that's kind of the way we all do yoga and meditation. It was just like, I just want to feel better. Just like, it's been a rough day. Just, you know, and you do get brief kind of like dopamine buzz and things are better when you're doing a little yoga and meditation, but that's just the post-meditation buzz. It's like having a glass of wine. And if you can use these tools, I think, to go deeper and to really like sit in the discomfort for a minute and not just wriggle free to the next like whatever distraction, then I think it's like finally you're starting to get something real out of it that isn't just about like hopping to the next lily pad of fun like really going through your emotional knots part of why we don't go there as a culture is that we just don't give ourselves the time because you really you not only need sort of the mindset to want to do that but also like if you're just hopping to a class every now and again you really do need a little bit of like spaciousness, like to take a few days and go there. So it's not some, a luxury we all have, certainly not as parents. But I mean, I think, you know, that was a an insight for me. Yeah, no, that's a really, really good point. I wanted to tell you that when you, you talk about dukkha at one point in the book, and that the word that we think of as suffering is what you had a teacher who translated as bad axle hole. And I was so excited about that because Richard Rosen, who's a a yoga teacher who I used to work with at Yoga Journal, is the only other person I know who's translated it that way. And I have sometimes wondered if he made it up. So anyway, so he says just like dukkha is bad axle hole and then sukha is good axle hole and sukha in yoga is thought of as like ease or, but he takes it further and translates them as like, bad space and good space. Like, because, you know, if your axle is working, like everything's working well and it's, it's creating good space. And I was just thinking as you were talking about that, like you really do actually have to create a sense of spaciousness internally in order to really go out into the world and like, feel like that you're applying the practices to your life. That little translation change was a whole reframe for me where, you know, usually, of course, Duke is translated as suffering. And there is this kind of, you're kind of like, why are Buddhists always talking about suffering? Like, (laughs) get over it a little bit. Like, can't we just, I mean, yeah, there are many ways to talk about different states, but it's always like, we use that word, suffer, suffer, suffer. Yeah. and, And it's like the Buddha's first noble truth is like, well, life is suffering. But it makes so much more sense when you translate it as this bumpy ride that you get from having a, a, a misshapen axle hole. And he was saying, well, yeah, life's a bumpy ride. And you're like, oh, well, duh, of course it's a bumpy ride. <laughs> but it reframes the whole Buddhist tradition as like, it's basically a way of dealing with the bumps and not just saying like, well, life is, is suffering because that that just turns the whole thing into this dualistic game where it's like, well, you escape suffering by nirvana and that's leaving the world and its troubles behind instead of saying, well, it's about embracing the bumps and actually like a bumpy ride doesn't have to be 
bad. And, and at least it's a ride, nice. you know, it's a ride. Yeah, <laughs> it's like you're, you're living. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, there's some joy there. That Suka edition is cool because it is like, well, yeah, you can smooth it out with yeah. practice and, and any amount of practice. I mean, going back to saying like, you need to do a lot to embrace these emotions. I don't think you need to do a lot, but I think if you have the right mindset, well, yeah, it's about embracing the good and the bad, then even a little bit of practice can be that much more beneficial. Yeah. Um, so two questions come to mind. You know, you write so beautifully about water and just like the importance of water and like the joy that humans find in the water. And I think that's because, you know, you find a lot of joy in the water and surfing. Would you say that surfing is kind of like a bridge for you between the austerities of the monastery and the things you learn there and then kind of bringing them into your everyday life? Yes, absolutely. I mean, that's I've always seen it as this kind of bridge between the earth and the sky or the hustle and the bustle and the, and the monastery because it has a lot of meditative qualities and we're learning more about the water. Like when you go down, just going down to the water and looking at the water, like you get out of the prefrontal cortex kind of planning mind and start to find a more present way. And it's not that you shut off the mind, but it's like your mind gets kind of entertained by the water in a more, so you're more present with it. And it's, so it's kind of a shortcut in a way to like a meditative mindset, but it's also like the water itself is dynamic. And so it's like something to focus on, almost like a meditation topic that the mind automatically globs onto is like, I like this. And I think also, though, because the waves are really keep you present and they're also beautiful and you're out there and there's some solitude, you can't bring your cell phone and, and whatnot. Um, brings peace but then there's this other element that it's like it can be really rough you can get thrown around it can be hard like your shoulders are burning during the paddle out yeah you get to be a dude like your stories are way scary like i don't think i could put myself in those positions <laughs> right there's a little testosterone maybe or just adrenaline and yeah that kind of i think mimics the world a little bit more and that you have these moments of peace but then you have these moments where it's scary and challenging and yet it's kind of contained like you have this little microcosm of all the things that can happen in a day this full spectrum and so if you can find some equanimity out there or just some love for it all then you can kind of bring that back to the world so yeah, I mean, in some senses, I think that's what yoga is supposed to be in all its many limbs, where you have like karma yoga, you have asana, you have meditation. And surfing for me has, it kind of brings in all those different ones, except yeah. for maybe ser service, unless you're doing a beach cleanup. <laughs> <laughs> or helping someone like me who's screaming on their surfboard. <laughs> right. Which, yeah, still got to get you out there. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> oh, yeah. I'm not a strong swimmer as a, I don't know. Yeah, that's a whole <laughs> other conversation. I'm. It, it's funny, this whole podcast has been revealing all of my sports inadequacies. <laughs> like Jason teases <laughs> me about my frisbee throwing and my inability to play volleyball. <laughs> now we're talking about surfing. This is why I am, but this is why I am attracted to yoga. It's something, you know. There's a, yeah, well, you've gotten really good at it. And now it's time to go into the <laughs> depths of Frisbee yoga. <laughs> in, go into the discomfort. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> go into the discomfort, Andrea. You know, I'm not part of the surf community. Are you an anomaly in the surf community as like a little Buddhist yogi? Or do they really embrace your approach and point of view? Like, do you have a community of surfers who get you? It's, you know, the surfing community is big. Yeah. It's, you know, I don't know, tens of millions around the world. Yeah. And so I would say the overarching mainstream surf culture is like Red Bull. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, like pushing it to the limit kind of dude culture. 
But it's funny when you break through the facade of that, there are all kinds of people, even in that world, who are like meditating, doing yoga, who, you know, a lot like the NBA or the NFL can seem like it's just one note, but it's actually diverse and there's depth because there is depth in human being. Even that people sort of engage in that high performance surfing world. I'm often surprised that I'll hear somebody is like some pro surfer has been like recommending saltwater Buddha. Oh, wow. Yeah. Never would have thought. But then I think there are also a whole group who probably, you know, roll their eyes about it. And they're just like, it's like woo woo. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But I mean, I, I think if they actually read the books, they would see that I'm not just like preaching like I have this special connection to God because I'm a surfer or something. I'm just like surfing happens to be a part of my life. I'm a, a Buddhist. And so I'm just writing stories. And so I think like I just wrote a story in the Atlantic about is surfing a sport or a religion. And I have this surfer magazine editor quoted, who's a friend of mine, actually, who's like, surfers need to stop like claiming they have some connection to the Tao or something because they surf. Like it's just like dopamine and serotonin. And if you think only surfing can get you there, like you need to get out more. And he's basically like, there's too many books like Soul Surfer and like the Tao of surfing. (laughs) And I kind of agree with them, to be honest, even though I'm one of the people writing those books. Cause... <laughs> this is why I like you, Jamal. You understand all the uh, anachronisms. <laughs> because I don't think surfing is special and being able to get you to some like spiritual state. I mean, I think you could write the same kind of books about golf or race car driving. It's like everything has sure. a way of getting you into... You can approach anything as a sort of meditation and surfing has some nice qualities because I think the water is healthy and the ocean does make you present and we're water and there's lots of little connections you can make. But I agree with him actually that I think you can get the same state, you know, golfing if you bring the right mindset to it. It's true. It is the flow state. Like if, yeah, I mean, it actually has been proven. Like if, you, you know, you can get into a flow state by painting, you can get into a flow state by meditating and get into a flow state. Yes. No, I, I, yeah, I see that. I see that. But you do write about it beautifully. Thank you. And it is actually pretty inspiring, even though I'm not going out to surf on Ocean Beach. (laughs) (laughs) Not happening. So let's talk about you're a parent of three little boys. How old the oldest is five. The youngest is how old? Almost two. Almost two. Oh my goodness. So you're a busy guy. Do you have time right now to surf or meditate? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, we're lucky that we live across from Ocean Beach. So I, my surfing is like surgical strike missions. You know, I I do get up there almost every day. Just, oh, that's great. It's kind of my little yoga routine. And then I meditate less than I used to for sure. But I, I sit with them every night as they're going to bed. Mm. And sometimes that means that I actually sit. Other times they're like, Dino, what's the score of the Giants game? (laughs) I'm not going to sleep until you tell me the score of the Giants game. (laughs) By the end of when they're finally asleep, I'm exhausted and I'll fall asleep. But hey, it's like at least I'm, you know, sitting there for 30 minutes. And then I, I still, I think one of the reasons I'm teaching mindfulness retreats now is that it is a way for me to go on retreat yeah no it's yeah yeah (laughs) and you know that's the honest truth and I also enjoy I think teaching is the best way to learn I agree so I still do my quarterly retreats and and then Amy will start you know seeing me get a little edgy and she'll be like we're setting up a weekend retreat for you (laughs) and so they'll do personal retreat to where and I I feel like I don't know if you have found this as a parent but I do think something kicks in where you don't take your time for granted and so the time that you have you're like okay I have 20 minutes to meditate right now in the morning and I'm gonna I'm not gonna lollygag (laughs) totally no it's so true it's that way with my yoga practice too I'm so much more efficient yeah yeah so that that happens. And then, but honest to goodness, I do feel like parenting as a practice and 
that first day when we met Kai, our five-year-old, I remember finding this. I was like, this is a new love. Yeah. I've never felt this love. And if I can see, it's the first glimpse I've gotten of truly selfless love. And I've wanted, this is what I've been building my spiritual practice toward is like to feel this for all beings and be of service. And yet I've never experienced anything. This seems like the closest. Mm -hmm. And so I think just, you know, being a opening up to that and all the patience that comes with it is like, I think if there's anything that's yoga, it's, it's that. And so, you know, that's, I do see it as a practice. I do too. Parenting has tested me more than anything else in my, it's tested my practice more than anything else in my life. And I think you're right. Like, I mean, especially as a mother, because so much of your physical body is involved with it in the beginning, like if you're nursing and even just like giving birth, and even if you are not, even if you didn't give birth to your child, like you are the primary one that they cuddle with and all those things. In the moments where I forget that it's okay to be serving someone else as a job, <laughs> it's, I'm like really resentful, you know, but just having that concept of, of doing your practice so that you can serve others on so many different levels, it just helps bring me back to a more it just brings me, it makes me happier about what I'm doing on, in those little minute moments where it can get like really tedious or really overwhelming or, or when I start to feel like I'm losing myself. It's like, okay, but this is, yeah, this is part of spiritual practice is helping this little being as much as I can, even when she's like screaming at me about something, you know, it's the hardest part of practice I've ever done personally. Yeah. And I think it's why it's the most fruitful too. Yeah, that's that, true. That's true. I mean, so much of the practice is like in the beginning, I think, is that you feel really good doing these. Um, I mean, you're like, wow, I'm, I'm on this super highway of like feeling healthy and there's these new states of joy and wonder that you didn't have before your yoga practice. And so it's so easy to just attach to those and be like, it's all about my progress of feeling great. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I think the reason a good teacher will sort of shake students out of just that, of like, it's not just the yoga Hilton where you then get more mindfully eat ice cream. It's like, which those are all great side effects, but ultimately it's like, we're trying to create this enlightened society and, you know, it's bigger than that. And so, which I need shaking out of all the time because I feel like half the time I'm just trying to keep my head above water. So it's like my meditation practice is so important and I need it and I need to be productive of it. And that's true. But I also, because, you know, we need to do our daily practice just to keep up a practice. But I think when I was alone and had all the time I, I needed to do it, I could really easily just attach to states. And it was just a game of attaching to states. And with kids, you can't, you know, you're just like, that is out the window because you're going to be tired. You're going to get angry because your kid like is still having a tantrum and mm -hmm. you're going to have to regulate the anger and, you know, and then you're going to have to be like angry at yourself for being resentful about being a parent, all those totally. things. Totally. And then like you have to so deal with your partner's complex. emotions, like your part, your partner's responses and like your response to your partner's response. And yeah. Yeah. I think there's so much growth there because like, if you can, glimpse how like those stories are not you at when you're in them when you're in the really hard like resentment or whatever and and you're like oh this is this really is just a story that I don't need to latch on to I can let go it's like that's kind of advanced emotional yoga yeah <laughs> so yeah. um and we don't always have those opportunities even at work like with like political fires or whatever because adults are kind of reasonable sometimes <laughs> right <laughs> yeah well, i mean hopefully but yes they, they're at least adults even if adults are not reasonable you can tend to start to predict their patterns this is what i i've kind of come to with my daughter it's like we get ingrained in our patterns so then you can predict someone's patterns with a child. There's just no predicting from moment to moment or day to day, like what you're going to get, you know, so especially in these real, in these younger years. So that is really keeps you on your toes. 
so true yeah your expectations are pounded into the ground because <laughs> you're like oh my gosh this is gonna be a great day we got I got like this new basketball or whatever and yeah. you're all ready and all of a sudden it's like nope it's after school sorry and the kids are exhausted and they're gonna throw a tantrum now and it's it, so and then other times you're thinking this is gonna be a really hard flight you know and they're like hey they're really good. Yeah. But you still <laughs> might have some of the residual hormones like adrenaline pumping through your body because you were like preparing for it to be. Yeah. No, it's so it's amazing. It really is like riding the waves. It's funny. All the stuff that our oldest learns in preschool about like they call it being super flex with your emotions. And I'm thinking, yeah, it's like you can become super flexible in your body and never have flexible emotions. <laughs> and they're learning this emotional yoga that is so key. I'm so happy that their you know, preschool is getting into that now because it's like we should all learn that from, I love uh, that. from day one. Yeah. That's great. We're not doing that at the Italian school. <laughs> <laughs> the Italian school Ugh. is pretty funny about interactions between the kids. Like it's very much like it's a little old school. I mean, I everything else about the school philosophy is very modern and like it's all play-based and using your hands and things like that. But when it comes to difficult interactions between the kids, they're like, you just let the kids settle it themselves. And we're all kind of uh -huh. like, wait, really? Like not to be a helicopter parent, but aren't we supposed to be teaching them? So yeah. Anyway, that's interesting to hear that they're talking about managing your emotions in that way. Many different approaches. I mean, our oldest, he's gotten some special sort of counseling along those lines because he's he's very advanced in reading but he sort of needs a little social emotional help so we had him in some special programs oh that's great and I was like oh my I mean we would literally read through the letters that they were teaching they give us a little newsletter and we would use it in our own emotional lives because it, it was just great I mean they have all these things like you know if you're feeling really shut down you're the worry wall and the worry wall is like, it just butts up against things. And so it's all about identifying your emotions or, yeah. or rock brain. When you're afraid, you have rock brain. And so what we'll do is say like, oh, well, how are you feeling right now? Are you feeling rock brain? And he'll be like, yeah. And just like meditation where you say, okay, I'm not necessarily trying to change my state, force myself out of it, but just identifying how I'm feeling, it can kind of... Release pop it. you out of it yeah. yeah where you're just like oh sadness and it's okay to feel sad you know and totally. again it's like telling them that they it's okay and so that has been beautiful thing to see and seeing how well it it works sometimes I mean again they'll surprise you and just be like I want to be rock brain <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah totally you're like all right oh my go gosh ahead, but still out. at least there's that awareness <laughs> and that acknowledgement I think that's key that's just key we're trying to do that with Sophia too but we don't have those tools I'm gonna have you send me that uh that, that pdf whatever you have happily yeah things that you talk about that that's kind of a through line in the book is this question of whether or not the soul exists like what what happens to us and it, you just you write about it so well i'm wondering if the experience of of your father dying in the past year has like brought you any insight around that or if you had any thoughts around that or if he did as he was dying mhm mm I think, uh, well, I think one of the reasons I wrote about it in the book was because I was, even though I was writing about a previous decade of my life, I was writing about that decade watching my father die because he had been diagnosed with terminal cancer basically when I started the book. And so I knew he was dying all through writing it. And I was thrown into that a little more serious questioning of, you know, consciousness and the soul. I mean, I had always been, as I talk about in the book, kind of 
got out of thinking about it through a little bit of that Zen, like, well, I'm just going to be agnostic. And there's all these sort of Zen koans you can do, like unconfuse yourself by not knowing. Mm -hmm. And it's like, Mm -hmm. there is, it's just to be present with what is, but, and that is a way of finding peace in the moment. But at the same time, here we are, it's like, there's a relative world too, and we die. And there are all these yogic teachings about reincarnation and, and consciousness not being contained by the body. And so it was interesting in that, you know, as my dad was in hospice and I was with him for that time that he was really in his last couple of months and I was spending a lot of time up there and I would, we would read like the Bhagavad Gita about aloud, like laying in bed or, and talk about his transition. And, and then he would often say things in his dreams, like of what he was feeling about like his identity dissolving hmm. away. And he would have these dreams of where he was different people. None of that really like was like, oh, this is hard proof that, you know, you're something's happening. But it was at any rate, it made me, I think having to talk with him, it made me think like, well, what, what do I really think is happening to my dad? Like, where is he gonna, gonna go? And I mean, the truth is, I, of course, I still don't know. You know, we did some really beautiful Tibetan ceremonies and they felt very spiritually powerful. And after he passed away, I had some incredible dreams of sort of communicating with him. And so I feel like his consciousness, whatever, is almost as present as it was in life to me. And I guess I live my life in a way in which I'm not just this body. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, I, I talk about this with a little more eloquence, I think, in the book, but the I think the reason I got into sort of spiritual questioning in this book after writing a book about science was going down the rabbit hole of consciousness, getting to talk with like neuroscientists and particle physicists about like, hey, what do we know? Like, what do we know about consciousness? What do we know about how this reality is formed when like you get down to the quantum level and like nobody has any clue how reality is sort of arising? And neuroscientists have really no idea where consciousness is located or if it is coming from the brain. I mean, nobody can prove anything. Yeah. And so, and then you get into near death experiences and it's like every culture, when people are brain dead and resuscitated, they almost always have some great adventure to report. And there's often like that same imagery of the light and being drawn to the light. Yeah. Or they're hovering above themselves and they yeah. can see the doctors working on them. And I mean, that's been well documented in all kinds of medical journals then you meet these great spiritual teachers who they can tell you so much that is true about life. And then they can also say, well, hey, this is also true about after death. And so, you know, I definitely lean that way toward like logically reasoning that there is some, um, that at the very least, it's good to live one's life as if there is something that continues after death. Because if you don't, you could be just totally caught and aware. And if you're wrong, and it's just like a big sleep, well, hey, I mean, yeah, exactly. <laughs> no harm, no foul, you know, it's right. Like, so I, I think I live my life that way. And I seeing my dad transition just sort of it made that questioning a little bit less because I'm just like, no, I'm living my life this way. This is a part of my spiritual practice. Yeah, I like I like how you talk, you know, you brought some science into the book uh without getting super super heavy or detailed, you know, just in terms of like we are made of energy and we're learning more, you know, and science is actually measuring that more and more. You know, reading what you wrote was the first time in a while that I've thought like, yeah, I might be able to go there. I might be able to go to the place of instead of what you're sort of saying is the cop out of like, well, we don't know what we don't know, which is where, where I always am going to the place of like, well, it's simply energy. Like there's something that must happen with that energy and it might not continue to be conscious energy, but it might reincarnate as something else, or it might just still exist 
in the in the universe or yeah I don't know I don't know but but <laughs> y- you got me thinking which is which is kind of exciting yeah I mean I, I think all of us are operating in that I don't know space but it's I think the other thing that has made me lean toward lean heavily toward being like no there is I mean the Buddhists get out of it by saying still that there is no soul but sort of we're all we have sort of a karmic mind stream that continues and so it's it's not a separate entity it's you know always united with sort of the great everything but to my understanding that's exactly what yogis are saying about the soul anyway so i don't think there's this huge division outside of the sort of inside baseball (laughs) of, of yoga and buddhism i think as you practice yoga in a really like if you get the chance to go on a long retreat and get into feeling things about the subtle body that are otherwise just undetectable to like when you're just sort of in a heedless state like you know whatever the chakra system or the different nadis and things like all this stuff is mapped out Mm -hmm. (laughs) by these great yogis and like it takes some serious work to even begin to feel that. And I think that they were able to map that so long, so many thousands of years ago, and that science still hasn't been able to recognize it. But if you really practice for any length of time, you can feel the system. I mean, mm-hmm. it's undeniable. that, And that they're also saying, hey, and this is what happens, you know, after death is that has made it more convincing to me because there's all that subtle body stuff is stuff that I would have been like, ah, hocus pocus. Right. Right. It's all like, yeah, there's lots of stuff that they say in India, whatever. Like, but if you can start to confirm those sort of pieces, then I think some of the more outlandish stuff you're like, Oh, well, you know, I'm not going to go and like, on CNN and say like, you have to believe this. It's, but I'm like, it's certainly more convincing. Yes. The other thing that helped me with that is I have been an acupuncture patient for a really long time, probably as long as I've done yoga. And I mean, essentially the systems that they mapped are exactly the same, if not very similar. So it's like in these two totally different parts, you know, cultures, they came up with the same, ideas and I respond so well to acupuncture to me it literally feels like magic every when I go I just can't believe that this manipulation of the subtle body works so potently so yeah it's true I mean I guess yeah and you talk about that in the book that that it's important to like test things out for yourself and have the experience but then you could also potentially put your faith in and people who have tested so many things more thoughtfully and deep, deeply than you might be able to in your lifetime. Yeah. I mean, I think it's just a shift in seeing like who we trust as like the, the people who have knowledge about existence. And it's like, we trust scientists because to tell us all these things about things we've never seen and never will see. And they're using a certain sort of model of thought, which is logic. Like, and you can wire up, say, a monk meditating with a scientific system and be like, oh, look, you know, these are the brain waves, and this is how it's, isn't it cool that they can emit these powerful waves when they're thinking of compassion? Mm-hmm. But the scientist has no idea what the monk is experiencing with that system. You know, it's like they have no clue. They're not experiencing it. They're not in that mental space. And so that's a way of knowing, I think the measurement way of knowing, which Mm -hmm. is the way that we've come to trust. But there's also this experiential way of knowing. And yeah, these yogis, um, I think they were able to map the subtle body through experience. It wasn't through like logic. It was like Mm -hmm. through going total internal science. And so they, you know, have found things that are are true and that we can't yet measure but you can see already like well now that we can measure 
these states of mindfulness or what have you, we're seeing all these benefits, but we're just scraping the surface, mm-hmm. we're just barely scraping the surface. So I think, you know, be very careful about who you trust. But if you find a teacher, a meditation teacher or a yogi who has gone really deep into these internal sciences and they are reporting things and they're trustworthy and you see that they're like stand up individuals in their lives, like to, to, you still have to go out and test it on your own, Mm -hmm. but to start saying, Oh yeah, I trust what you're saying. I don't think is any more of a leap than trusting a doctor saying like, Hey, I think this is what you might have if you're having these symptoms, you know? Yeah. Yeah, that's true. That's true. I hadn't really thought about it that way. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But no, having been through the medical system, I mean, you see how much we don't know, basically. That's kind of why I'm laughing. It's like, it's not that I don't respect doctors. I absolutely do. But there's just still so much that's a mystery. And so they are just doing their best with the knowledge that they have to, to help you. Like that's, that's the bottom line. And, you know, people resent doctors because they don't have all the answers and they sometimes make mistakes and they make choices that don't work out. But I really, I come back to that all the time. Like they're just doing the best they can with the information that they have, just like all of us. And they just happen to have immersed themselves in this one area, you know, that we don't have direct knowledge of. And the funny thing is that we all experience that when we go to a doctor, we're like, oh, I thought that they were going to be able to know mm-hmm. more certainly. And yet they're just people and they have a limited tools Yeah, and they're doing their best. But then we kind of go back to our lives and there's a little bit of like, I feel like this collective like stopping inquiry <laughs> into the big questions because it's like, oh, well, we're in the scientific era now. And it's like, well, people are just going to figure it out. It's like you know, they're measuring the universe, it's bending, it's their quarks, and it's things I don't understand, but they're going to like, I'll read a newspaper story about it. Right. (laughs) But it's like, you kind of just like write off the age old inquiry process of like, what are we doing here? Like, you know, and I think that all of that is still really relevant, and just as relevant as it ever has been. And you can certainly throw science into the mix. But it's like, they, they're still just figuring it out, too. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Well, we're, we're heading into past an hour. And oh I, my think, I know, I know. <laughs> and I have so many important things I wanted to ask you, but I think I'm just going to finish by asking, where are you teaching these days? Like, what are you up to? Where can people find you? I'm in all the places, you know, the Facebooks and Instagrams. Uh-huh. So you can follow me there. And I am threatening to do a weekly thing in San Francisco, but right now I just, the only thing I have on the books is a, a five day retreat. In, at 1440 in oh, Santa great. Cruz this January with a psychologist friend of mine, Arnie Kozak. We're teaching like a mindfulness uh, retreat with a little bit of ocean, maybe some surfing involved. And then, but yeah, I mean, I'm pretty active on all the social places. So I'll be announcing more classes and things and writings on there. Are you doing any more um, book readings? Yes. I've got a book signing and film screening in Larkspur Diesel Bookstore on August 16th. And there are more to come as well. There's one in Honolulu. So those dates I'll also be put up on, on your website, jamalyogas.com. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, but yeah, there's more book signings to come as well. Cool. Cool. And I'll, I'll put links to all your stuff on, on the show notes page as well. So people can find you. Great. All right. Thanks so much, Jamal. It was so great to to get back in touch with you. And I love your book. Thank you, Andrea. Thanks. It's really nice to hear your voice. And I love this show. So keep oh, up the good work. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks so much for listening. You can find show notes for this episode at yogalandpodcast.com slash episode 61. If you enjoy the podcast, please share it with a friend or on social media. Please leave a positive iTunes review that helps other people find it. And don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Until next week, enjoy your practice.